Jay is a hometown boy. He graduated from Abernathy High School in 1997. As they say, once an antelope, always an antelope. So join me in welcoming our hometown boy, Jay Leeson. pleasure to be here and thanks for having me. Um, so many wonderful faces that I see. It's good to see a lot of these faces again. Uh, these are my two ladies and it is um, not so much an icebreaker as much as a stone-cold truth when the first question whenever people see me with my wife is how? How did that happen? And uh, the second one's kind of a PTL that she looks more like her stunning mother than she does me, my daughter. Um, you know, Lyndon Johnson said it's not the job of politicians to walk around and say principled things. A broken clock can be right twice a day, and some politicians are twice every era. Uh, like, for instance, Hillary. Hillary said it takes a village to raise a child. And that's right. I think that's a principal right thing. It's a principal thing for her to say. She also said, we must accept the result the day after the 2016 election. That was a principal and right thing. But I'm here to talk to you tonight about that number one thing, about that village thing and a place and a child and the opportunity I had to be a son of Abernathy, Texas. And I'd like to discuss that with you and how that informs the way in which I see politics. I mean, I see it from a different vein from a lot of people because I feel like I come from a different vein. I, I want to describe for you all, and it's let, just allow me to begin by talking about how I got to Abernathy, Texas as a young boy and what I did after I graduated from Abernathy High School and now I want to come back to my experience area. So three parts. Three part sermon there, Mike. <laughs> so, my family line in Texas goes back to my great-great-grandmother and her father and his father, circuit riders down below the Caprock. Methodist circuit riders. <laughs> the Harrisons. And I feel like they thought it was okay just to hang out below the calf rock until General Randall McKenzie arrived to prove that he was the real lord of the plains, right? So uh, they stayed below the calf rock until the Comanche question was answered. That just some background, I'll touch, come back to that here in just a minute. I was born in 79, 1979 and uh, brought home from the hospital to a farmhouse near Mayfield out on Highway 179. And that's where I came home. My father had helped a farm operation, and that's where I was brought home for the first time. And that was in the early 80s. Dad took over that farm operation. Young, and lots of you already see a problem with that. In the early 80s, debt, startup debt, fixed and input costs, no place you wanted to be. It rained, and as Dad says, it rained in 81, twice as much in 82, and twice as much in 83 as it did in 82. And, and then you had skyrocketing interest on top of that. I've written before, and just allow me to read this paragraph, as I've addressed problems 
with agriculture and people neglecting the needs of agriculture in the state and around the country, a farmer fights forces too big to fight alone. High foreign subsidies, tariffs, and non-tariff trade barriers, trade cheating abroad, the EPA's overreaches at home, sometimes two or three fights simultaneously in the midst of a hurricane, drought, or a blizzard. And those are the forces that a farmer takes on. And I've written that as a man because I saw those hard realities as a young boy come to play. And as a man, I've always tried to use whatever platform I had to the extent that I have a voice in this state. I've tried to use it to come and to, beside farmers who are engulfed and entrenched in a fight that's too big to fight alone. Because I would have wanted somebody to do that for me and for my father. And, you know, when did I start this thing? How long did I have, Mike? That's probably not a good question to ask from the podium. <laughs> uh, like, I'm just thinking for just, just hear me out for just a second. Whenever, whenever I was a kid, and we'd go, and this is before I was playing varsity basketball, but we'd play Chrome, right? And we'd play Pilot Point and Grapevine. And, like, as a kid and growing up in that kind of athletic success, like, we're taking on the biggest and the baddest. And I think that that's something that comes from a kid from Abernathy, is that you stick to your fundamentals, you do what's right, you work hard, and you can beat the best of the best, no matter how athletic they are, no matter how talented they are. And lots of times I give a hard time to the big guys in Texas politics because I'm from Abernathy, Texas, and we've taken down bigger people in my mind, right? So I don't, I don't have any problems sticking it to them, but it always drives me crazy. There's this phrase that I coined, and it's called suburbitarian, and it's a a libertarian who lives in the suburbs who makes arguments about this socialism up in agriculture and it's always this subsidies and but it's never a subsidy whenever they want to recruit Amazon right to the Metroplex or it's always incentives but it's subsidies whenever it comes two guys who are making these arguments while they're on a diet of affordable food and their whitey tidies are in a knot by affordable fiber. <laughs> Dad went bust, and that was in his 20s, and then there were personal battles that Dad could not fight alone, and that took him another decade or so to get over. So I'm sitting in the context of our entry into Abernathy. Now, I'm not a determinist. I spent way too much time in that Methodist church to be a determinist, okay? <clears throat> But I do believe, I think and we all believe in the Christian faith, regardless of whether you think things were determined or not, God will make things right in the end. And he's done that in our home. And I adore my dad today. I think he's the finest man I know. And I think God's done a mighty work in his life. He's been a willing participant in it. And my stepmother is precious. And she's walked with him in that time. But I bring all that up. Not to have a youth group story with you all, but to simply say that I arrived here as the eldest, and I was more than partially raised by this community. And I wanted you to play out tonight as a, as a token of my gratitude what that meant for me, to be raised by Abernathy, along with a resilient and determined mother who would not let us slip up. 
and an honorary younger brother who just happens to be a missionary today. Um, he was much more honorary than I was. I don't care what any of you say. Um, but whenever you lack familial roots in a place and the concomitant or the, the general familiarity that comes with it, you gain a unique perspective. Because I had to learn this place as a boy. And I wrote my first statewide essay was a piece called Politics of Place. And that's what I talk about. I want what's best for place and let's go from there. That's what I'm about. Whenever I talk and, and write. And that essay goes like this. A place, this is how the essay starts. A place carries a continuity of knowledge and it passes it from generation to generation. How the place works, what makes it turn. When there's disruption in this continuity, learning transpires by costly lessons of what the place will and will not tolerate. Such learning risk decline, perhaps demise. And I remember as a boy being around the Rileys, or being around the, all the Rileys, and then being concerned, <laughs> and me driving on turnos with Steve and Bob, and, and listening to the market reports. Oh, that's not, I have no idea what they're talking about. Right? Oh man, the international market. Oh, that sounds terrible. Am I going to get paid for today? Okay, I'm good. Right? <laughs> but later I would understand the technicalities involved in that. But I always understood just from the outside looking in and coming in a general dread of disruption. And I think that's felt in a lot of rural places that there's a disruption going on, are we gonna to continue to hold our footing? So, let me just go fast forward from there. And my iPad has 4% left on it. That's awesome, so we're all gonna get out of here early. Uh, when I graduated from Abernathy, I went to Slayton. And I love Slayton, and if their chamber invites me, I'll talk about Slayton, but I'll save you all that as well. But from Slayton, I did this great event with Bob Knight and a lot of people, a lot of pious religious people didn't necessarily appreciate it because he said some be like 14 times in two minutes at that event. But there were people in Tulsa who appreciated it at the First Methodist Church and they hired me and I went up there for about eight years. There's a church of 9,000 people which was like Abernathy 4th of July. This was really my reference. Abernathy 4th of July on steroids every Sunday. <laughs> And that was a lot of fun. But I went from there to uh, Asbury Seminary. And Charity and I really didn't know why we were going because by that point, like, I'm giving you some love tonight, but I'm going to be real for just a second. Abernathy burns through coaches like they're matches. Okay? And so, but also with ministry, like, I did ministry long enough to understand that that's not my knack. Like, I don't have enough patience to put up with all that all the time. Like, I can go do a radio show and have fun and still say things that need to be heard, and then I'm off the clock whenever I get home. But um, that's, that's selfish, but I'm being real. It's a, it's a real hard quality of life, so lay off on the... And Mike didn't even pay me to say this, but just <laughs> lay off on, off, on the uh, ministers. But we went just because we thought that we needed to go. And we didn't know where the road was going to go, so I stuck with an academic track at Asbury Seminary, which is not Methodist, but it is Methodist and uh, a conservative Methodist seminary. And while I was there, I met a man and his name's Leonard Fitch. And Leonard Fitch has run the IGA 
In Wilmore, Kentucky, population 3,000, if you include the seminary population, uh, his dad started in 1954. His dad would not sell tobacco in central Kentucky in 1954. The bank said, you aren't going to make it. They made it. Closed on Sundays, no lottery tickets. And this is what Leonard Fitch, you know, Miroslav Wolf, I think he's at Yale still, but he wrote a book called A Theology of Work. And a theology of somebody having real purpose and meaning in this world because of the work that they put in. Like a lot of teachers I see in this room, like a lot of teachers I've written about in this room. And Fitch believed he was put on this earth to be a grocer. And in 1998, he began to lose money in his grocery store because a super Sam Walton died early 90s, and then the stores moved to big box stores, and so there was Super Kroger, a Super Walmart. I know I'm preaching the choir right now, but just hear me out. Fitch put in $600,000 because his wife was a Lloyd Vincent heiress to keep that store open. And then they started putting their Social Security into it. And his wife, in this time, has stage four lung cancer. And I sat down. I remember Miss Titsworth in fourth grade. Well, first of all, I remember her husband telling us that we could laugh at their name one time, and that's all. <laughs> but I remember in the fourth grade, Miss Titsworth, me handing in a report, and it coming back, and it saying, you have a knack for writing. And I know it said I started the Abernathy Weekly Review, but that's when that really sparked in me that, hey, maybe I can do this. Maybe, maybe I do have a knack of it, but that's a whole other Abernathy story. I was going to write on the incongruity of Leonard Fitch, who had won 24, 25 city council terms without a sign, who was doing five funerals a week as the owner of this store. Five funerals. They would come in because he was their minister. That was their, their guy. And so he would do funerals for free. But there was an incongruity about how we felt about Fitch and where we did our shopping. And so I was going to write about that incongruity in like a big piece, like a big piece and big, like in my mind. And then somebody directed me one day to Luke 10 and a story about a man who fell on the side of the road. And the son of man asking, who is the neighbor? The neighbor is the one who helps. I got really convicted about that, and I stopped trying to write about it. Went in there and helped Fitch. And, you know, it's that thing, like people like, oh, take this survey, and you can find your gifts, and we'll figure out where you're going to work for the rest of your life. And it's in service that we find those gifts, right? It's when they were really serving other people. And it was in that time that it began to click in me that, hey, this is something I'm really interested in. But you know what really clicked in me was Abernathy Tech. Like, at Fitch's store, like half a continent away, I began to see my place and understand what people were concerned about. And to understand, so I just began to be absorbed in rural economics and making the case that if Fitch's store fails, so will Main Street. If the grocery store fails, so will the florist, so will the farmers, so will the tire joint, so will some restaurants. And then every time you spend a dollar locally, it changes hands seven times and 65% of it stays in the community. And that rural communities 
when they enter a history of loss and decline, they can always look back to the point in which they began to vote against their own interests and work against their own interests. And I'm, like all this stuff is just working in seminary, so I guess supernatural, right? So all that stuff's beginning to flick around in my mind. And so I just simply made the case to, to my cohorts, buy four, three or four meals from Fitches a week. I'm not asking that you buy 21. I'm saying start with three or four and then go from there. And we began to turn around that store. That store went into the black and it was a great story. But whenever our time had come to an end in Asbury, I began to understand why. And my circuit rider DNA started to pulse. And let's go home. Let's go home. Now, that was late 2011. And whenever I got home, Cotton was in a lot of trouble at the WTO. Like, we still didn't know what was going to happen. And then in 2014, it became the only commodity. You guys already know all this. The only commodity not in the Fargo, which is a problem, though, because within a 100-mile radius of Lubbock, Cotton's $5 billion a year. And you cannot withstand that blow in our communities with Cotton in that situation. And, pardon my frankness, I thought we had a congressman that wasn't doing a lot about it. Now, we have a congressman that's doing Like, the people I hear who talk to Arrington, like, I'll give you some backroom talk. You know what the complaint is with Arrington? That he won't slow down, right? Like, before it was like, hey, could you get up and maybe do something? Like, with the predecessor. But now it's like, hey, dude, can you please just sit down for a little while and let the, let, let, let the dust settle? I like that guy. Number two was healthcare access and what's being done with state reimbursements for rural hospitals. Judge, I'd give you 10 minutes here, but I don't think they could endure it, okay? <laughs> and that's a real problem with the viability of this part of Texas. And number three, rural public schools and the economy. And I don't mean the monetary economy. I mean economy as in the way that a house or a place works is organized culturally and socially around the public school. It's the lifeblood of a rural community. And I'll say this, luckily for Hale County, at least on the Hale County line up, you got a warrior in the state representative. I think an awful lot of Ken King and the way that he's willing to go for public schools. In July 2017, I wrote a column and it went viral. And it was about my experience, and I can't think of a better way to articulate to you closing out here, my experience here, how it shaped me, and its impact that it has now that I've write about it, I've got my mind around it, and I begin to advocate for it, the impact that it's had around the state. The name of the title was, What Are the Costs of Losing Rural Schools? And it begins like this. Lately, I've been mulling on my contempt for the Texas legislature's advocation of rural schools. I've concluded my contempt is rooted in my deep appreciation for being a product of a rural school in Abernathy. Population 2,904, at least then. The first time I met my varsity basketball coach, he was talking about what Jesus had done in his life. There in a small second-floor Sunday school room, Wayne Riley was miraculously keeping the rapt attention of sixth-grade boys 
We quickly discerned the tears he was failing to choke back were real, and in the years to come, the convictions that so easily made his cheeks quiver molded us as young men. The most intimidating figure in our high school was a quiet-spoken woman, slender and impeccably permed silver hair. Play ball and earn a diploma, you had to go through Betty Hardy. <laughs> who'd been demanding mathematics performed perfectly for some tw 45 years. As perfectly as she had made change in the ticket booth for our football games with the same precision with which she played the doxology at church every week. For us, she was proof that God, the sovereign of the Old and New Testaments, puts people on this earth to be teachers. On Monday nights, we gathered in Miss Harden's classroom, and there, Gid Atkinson, a retired teacher and superintendent, gladly rescued those of us capsized in a sea of algebra and trigonometry. Turns out, Gid had been rescuing people for decades, starting with leading his platoon into Utah Beach in 1944. It instills untold confidence. It instills untold confidence in a boy when a man who advanced across Europe against Nazis, a man decorated with two purple hearts and a bronze star, says, you can whip this Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> Gerald Kelly was our ag mechanics teacher, a master of making men, and he taught, taught us to overhaul Chevy 454 engines. Mr. Kelly overhauled me on a couple of occasions. <laughs> when he'd heard my weekend actions were incompatible with what I'd said as student council president or youth group leader. He hired me one summer to dig post holes on his place, and this is work that I would recommend everyone do once, but just once. <laughs> and the great tragedy of my adolescence was the sudden death of my grandmother Betty. Harold Buffy was a band director with a bad farming habit. The farm near Hill Center where my grandmother had been a junior high secretary, Mr. Buffy, like all great educators, adhered to a philosophy of high challenge and high support. When my little busted heart couldn't blow the baritone, he knew why, and he took me aside, and he bent down and said, I know it hurts, but I want you to do something for me. I want you to think about how lucky you are to have been her grandson. And I squeezed a few more tears and then joined back into a lackluster rendition of Barbara Ann. <laughs> These are just a few stories, but they aren't unique. Similar stories can be told in urban and suburban schools, but they are extremely common in rural Texas, which is the point. There are costs to losing rural schools, and hardly anyone is doing the math. The state is shifting 8%. 8% of your appraisal creep was factored into the last state budget. And this share of public education and property taxpayers over the last decade is an unsustainable trend for small communities. Where, rain, where Main Street is declining and commodity prices and surrounding fields are lagging, these immediate costs are the consolidation of rural schools and thus the social and economic decimation of rural communities. But what's the cost of state subsistence dollars sent to offset decimation for decades after a school district's gone? Moreover, reneging on the teacher retirement system will invariably come at the cost of Gid Atkinson's. And I close it out, my iPad just died. I close it out by saying, the math that needs to be done is not being done. Not being done the right way. What they needed was a Betty Harden. <laughs> and I'll just close it out by saying this to you. Whenever I started 
my radio program got this up on uh, Facebook Live. You can go there if you want to afterwards. Uh, other side of Texas on Facebook. But I do that show every day from 5 to 6 on AM 580. And whenever I started writing, I started talking, I had a staffer from a very powerful staff in the Texas legislature. And he said, Jay, we get people to talk about agriculture in these metropolitan areas, in these urban areas. We get them to talk about public education. We get them to talk about medical. It always is like AstroTurf. It's something concocted by, no offense, chambers of commerce. And just, voters just say, no, no thanks. But you talk about it and it's organic. Where is this coming from? And I took a big grin in my office and I said, buddy, when was the last time you visited Abernathy, Texas? Those are my comments. Y'all, thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for having me, and God bless Abernathy, Texas. Thank you, Jay. Our president has some final word for us, and Jay, it's been a pleasure hearing you. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Let me just take the mic one more time. Um, I anticipate, and I don't want to presume or assume, but I assume I'm going to be given an honorarium. Yes. Do you have that with you? Yes. How much is it for? $300. All right. You got the check? Who's got the check? I've got the check. Let me see that check right quick. Is the bank here? Yes, sir. I want to make sure it's good. <laughs> Vista Bank, hey, Glenn Till, come on up here. Vista Bank. Uh, I'm going to endorse this thing right now. And to whom some or much or a little bit is given, and this is pretty generous, I appreciate that. I want this to go to the Moorhead or the Harden Moorhead Scholarship Fund. Can you do that for me? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.